A chance encounter with a potential car thief finds Isaac looking down the face of eternity when he's shot. But when that same thief risks her life to save his, with a strange miraculous power, he knows his world is forever changed, and his heart belongs to only her. I'm Heather Songster, and this is Hopelessly Romantic. Welcome back, readers and romance seekers, to another episode. Today's romance journey brings us to Just One Touch by Maya Banks. I had no knowledge of Banks until I came across this book. For some reason, however, I felt like I should have at least stumbled across her work by now. I found Just One Touch while my technical advisor and I were stuck waiting in a random big box bookstore near Chicago. He was kind enough to set me loose among the shelves, which is when I found this book. Maya Banks has been writing for quite some time, it seems. She has a number of series out for consumption, and the one that I was currently holding in my hands had the promise of a paranormal romance, i.e. someone had powers beyond the norm. It is the fifth in her Slow Burn collection, so I've already had a number of assumptions. To illustrate what we are about to experience, I need to give you the facts that led to my assumptions. First, Maya Banks is a seasoned author. She has over 50 novels under her belt, if I, if I see things correctly. Second, this is Elements of Paranormal Romance, my favorite. And third, The Promise of a Slow Burn gave me hope that these two aren't going to be shoved together at the whim of the author. In short, I thought I was in for a good time. You could probably already guess that this did not happen with my carefully placed foreshadowing clues and the slight delightful sarcasm in my voice. But it does me no good to just yap about it. We've got to get into the meat of this thing. Getting the cover out of the way, it is pretty plain. The entirety of the cover is devoted to the text of the author's name, the title, and the declaration of the series in which it resides. There is also some text devoted to telling us that the author has been on the number one New York Times bestseller list, but I've long learned to ignore such declarations, even before I started this podcast. You could say I've been burned before. The background of the cover is, I think, a ribbon, uh, crossed over like it's wrapping a gift, and everything is this dark, dusty rose pink. And that's it. It's just some text and a ribbon. How exciting. The cover is likely not the author's fault. Her publisher saw a trend of ultra-minimalist romance covers and ran with it. These types of covers are fine, I suppose, but they rank pretty low on my list as far as aesthetics go. Anyway, let's get into this thing. Jenna is running like mad. She's being chased, and she knows that if she is caught by the people pursuing her, it's not going to end well. She's pretty ill-equipped for this mad dash of freedom, barefoot of all things. The cold night hair has rendered her feet numb, and she doesn't have much other protection from the elements. In the distance, she can hear coyotes howl, and she's weighing her options. Try to avoid them, or run near to them, because she would likely be pursued by dogs as well as men, and those dogs might not want to go near the coyotes. I have to admire her optimism. As she's running, she's also praying to God, asking why he'd abandoned her, if she was truly the abomination that they said she was. This gave me some pause here because I was accidentally afraid that I fell into a Jesus book. Look, Jesus books are totally fine for romance novels. There is an entire damn genre from Harlequin called Love Inspired, meant for the God-fearing Christian to enjoy without much guilt. 
Hell, there's even a trend of Amish love stories that gives religious women the promised safety of romance without the erotic side. And again, that's fine, but I steer well and clear away from those novels because I feel once we've introduced God into the picture, we automatically lose a lot of agency for our characters. Instead of relying on fate or God's will to happen, and I'm not really always about that. Fate has its place in romance novels, sure, but that particular flavor of Christianity that leads folks to these kinds of books, it it doesn't always leave a great taste in my mouth. And yes, not everyone who reads these falls into that category, obviously. But I'm also concerned that it would just be a nonstop roast fest as I read these. And I really, really don't want to toe that particular line of roasting the content without directly calling someone's religion out for whatever nonsense is in those pages. (laughs) Turns out I don't have to worry. Oh, the roasting is going to happen, but it's not because of six pounds, nine ounces, baby Jesus. Anyway, Jenna's running. She's escaped from some kind of compound, and the back covers told us that she's escaped from a cult, so hence the running. I do kind of wish we'd seen a little bit of her life in the cult. I wanted to see exactly what the horror was that made her run, and how she managed to run as well. Getting out of a cult when it's of the lockdown compound flavor is extraordinarily difficult, so her escape would have been a great way to establish a lot of characters for Jenna. Uh, It could have shown us how determined she was, her inner conflict as she wrestles with fear of the outside and unknown against the hell that she is living every day. We could have seen her cleverness in action, proving to us that she is just not some wilting wallflower heroine waiting on fate. We don't get any of that, unfortunately. We do see her, though, finally coming across a lone gas station and a truck heading out into the city. She hides in the truck bed under a tarp and waits for the truck to go wherever that it's going to go. And here is where we catch up with Isaac. He works for a security company called Devereaux Security, and this is the world where our series takes place. Again, we don't get a lot of backstory here, and it's clear that the author is working on the assumption that the reader has already read the previous four novels. And in some ways, I wish I had. The security company and the people in it all operate in a way that left me lost more than once. Remember that this has elements of paranormal romance. The men, for the most part, are the ones working for the company, with one exception, and they're women. Uh... That they're often described this way, come with some flavor of psychic power. And if you don't know what those powers are, you're going to have a rough time. Honestly, trying to keep track of who's who was difficult enough without the superpowers. At any rate, Isaac apparently has had a very bad habit of leaving his work truck unlocked and the keys still in the car. Considering who he works for and the purview in which they work, the man should have been fired for this alone. Nothing says responsible security agent like a guy who leaves vital equipment unsecured. He'd stopped for a coffee and returned to see that his truck had its doors opened. He special ops sleuths around the parking lot until he gets to the truck and realizes that the scrawny teenager trying to jack his ride is, in fact, a pretty lady. She's described with imagery that suggests that she's been beaten, but Isaac's perspective also tells us that she looks like an angel, looks young enough to almost be a teenager, but has eyes like an old soul that sees things. So we're already off to a good start. He tries to talk her down when the sound of gunfire pops off. He does manage to protect her, but at the cost of his own life. I say life because Isaac has fully embraced death. 
He knows that it's happening and he's urging her to run as he bleeds out, but she refuses and puts her hand on his chest. This was the other aspect that gave me the impression that I had inadvertently picked up a Jesus book. Jenna is essentially performing a laying of hands. It's a form of spiritual healing, um, very big in the Christian evangelist community. And until he realized that she is saving his life, he is damn confused about why she's refusing to run. Despite feeling that he had been juiced with the greatest painkiller possible, he also knew that he didn't have the strength to help her get away. So he orders her to take his truck and calls for his backup. She lurches off in the truck, poorly, by the way, and his backup arrives to the horror of finding him in a pool of his own blood. As they begin to strategize about the fact that unknown agents just tried to take down Isaac, he begins to develop a, um, let's call it a conviction, that ushers in a major theme of this novel. She'd saved his life. And even if she hadn't, after one look at the bruised and bloodied, fragile slip of a woman, there was no way in hell he wouldn't move heaven and earth to make damn sure she was protected at all times. This was personal. This wasn't a DSS mission where she'd been assigned to a team or another man. She was his to protect. And if Caleb, Bo, or Dane had a problem with that, then they could go to hell. He'd hand him his resignation and take on the job himself. The novel promised me a slow burn, but this passage is serving raging forced fires of obsession vibes. I mean, yes, she did just save the man's life by ways unknown and miraculous, and she was clearly in trouble, but this is about as chill as Isaac gets. And I'm already concerned about Jenna's role in this story, but we'll we'll get there, don't you worry. After explaining what went down, waving away any skepticism that all of their wives could do weird shit, they focus on tracking her down, made easy with a GPS location unit in Isaac's truck. Soon they are able to catch up, thanks to the fact that she had to pull over somewhere secluded to sleep. Nothing the men do can rouse her, and they guess that she wore herself out with the act of healing Isaac. And Isaac is already showing off some seriously possessive behavior. When they're trying to make a plan of action, the guys tell him that he needs to report to the boss, and they'll take care of the woman. They don't know her name yet. He's furious at the idea, insisting that he'll go alone if he has to, and they don't need to endanger themselves for a non-client. They pull out the We're Family card so hard that Vin Diesel descended from the heavens and echoes in my brain, and he agrees with their original plan. He checks in, they settle her, and he'll get back to her when he's able. I just want to make clear that this guy was already ready to throw away his entire career in order to protect a nameless, albeit magical, woman. Yes, what she did was incredible, but he didn't consider that his team would be open to helping her after she'd saved his life. That, that's a little dense. Bottom line here is Isaac is ready to go all in here. He reports into these guys named Dane and Bo. I assume they're higher up on the ladder. Nothing's really explained in the command structure. Again, the author is relying on the reader to be up to speed, and I am very much not. I'm going to gloss over a lot of these extra characters because it's tedious to keep up with them, and I honestly couldn't keep anyone straight. Isaac reiterates that he doesn't expect anyone to follow his dumbass for helping her, but they pull the We're Family card again to nip that in the bud. And even though the woman isn't a DSS client, they're ready to throw in resource as Isaac needs them. 
They also tell him there's no shame in backing away from this particular case because clearly she is special. Someone is always going to be after her, so if he has to hand her off to another DSS agent, they are prepared for that too. To which Isaac responds with an angry, she's mine. So that's great. He arrives at the safe house where they had stashed her, and even though they changed her clothes, cleaned her up, and examined her injuries, she didn't wake up at all. So once he is alone in the room with her, what does Isaac do? Sit on a chair and watch over her? Leave the room so she could sleep in peace? <laughs> oh, heavens, no. No, he crawls into the bed with her. And I just love that it's not until he is all up against her and running his hands over her body that the idea crosses his mind that she might be involved with someone else. Except he uses the phrase, belongs to someone else, so that's also great. I'm really not sure who this attitude is for. I totally get the fantasy. A sexy, strong man protecting someone who clearly needs help. It's nurturing and encouraging and all that goodness. But this added layer of possessiveness is a little unsettling. He doesn't even know her name, and he has already pointed out that more than once she could have been mistaken for a teenager. He knows literally nothing about her except that she's on the run from bad guys who are willing to hurt her. And he thinks it's appropriate to crawl into her bed when she literally can't say no. I watched as the scene play out, and I knew it was coming. I was screaming at him not to do it, and he still did it anyway. And if I wasn't already concerned, this passage did not inspire great confidence. He was a man who knew what he wanted, and never hesitated to go after it. And he wasn't about to change the way he lived his life now. This woman was his, and her future was linked with his. It wouldn't be easy, he didn't expect it to be, but nothing good ever came easy, and he wasn't about to let her go without one hell of a fight. And he never lost. When Isaac finally manages to wake her up, and uh, he's still in bed with her, by the way, he tries to get out her story. She's panicking that they'll kill him and anyone associated with him in order to get her back with no leads on who they are. All of the waterworks, and he's telling her that he's not going anywhere, calling her baby, telling her it'll be fine now that he's got her. He finally gets her name, Jenna, and explains that he works for this company, DSS. They'll help protect her, but he's the one who will provide primary protection. Jenna hasn't explained anything yet, but they're still dead set on getting her to safety. But they don't even know who they're up against, so they can't really develop a proper defense. But still, family, I guess. They need to move her to another safe house, which happens a lot, by the way. And on their way, one of the guys named Shadow, yes, really, gets hit from one of their mystery pursuers. He is not as bad off as Isaac was, but there is still a good amount of blood. Jenna heals him, and he basically has the same religious experience as Isaac, except without the romance built in. I do wonder if the author put this in to demonstrate that Jenna's power doesn't make someone fall in love with her. When I consider the spark of something trope, this is probably the most heavy-handed version I've ever seen. Isaac is literally head over heels from her because she has supernaturally saved his life. 
So we have to have a scene where a man doesn't want to claim her after she has healed him in order to prove that Isaac's attraction is something else. And personally, I'm not buying it. I mean, come on, the man crawled into bed with, in, with her without having said more than ten words to her when she was conscious. There's not a lot that can explain that kind of behavior without turning our hero into an obsessive stalker. So Jenna heals Shadow. And what comes next is a perfect illustration of why this book drove me up the wall. A paragraph that spans the entire page of Shadow laying down platitudes. How incredible she is. How they'll protect her. How they'll keep her safe. How they can trust Isaac because he's the best guy ever. The way it's written, it's exactly the kind of quote that I would pull for demonstration, but I can't because it is so long-winded. Have you seen, have you seen The Emperor's New Groove? You know, that film with everyone's favorite himbo, Kronk. And Kronk has this moment of, oh, the poison for Cusco, and then just says the same thing in different ways. Imagine an entire book of that, because that is what this is. We've already established that they're ready to go hard for Jenna, that they're a family, that Jenna's special. We don't need it beaten into our skulls every goddamn minute. So as an example, American Queen and American Prince from the last review, those are also wordy. But what Sierra Simone accomplished is leagues above this author. No word is useless. Simone's narration and dialogue are clean and get the point across. Yeah, we get those moody tirades, but they weren't shoved down our throats. I wouldn't have tolerated those books otherwise. With just one touch, I feel like our author was trying to build up her word count with garbage. When I hit Shadow's monologue, that's when I gave up any hope that this book could be salvaged. Page-long paragraphs can and do exist in good literature, but they are rare and exceedingly difficult to pull off. It's like a long take in film. High risk, high reward if you do it well. Either this author doesn't have an editor, or she ignores the big red pen marks that her editor sends back on her manuscript. Anyway, when they get Jenna to the next safe house, they meet up with a previous book couple, Sterling and Eliza. It's with their interactions with each other that we begin to see Jenna's past come out to play. Eliza is snarky, and Jenna asks if Sterling is mad at Eliza for said snark. And as she sees more, more trauma comes out. She didn't know what a real home was like, and she's terrified of the television because it's the devil's instrument. All of that good culty stuff. She's pretty upset, and Isaac says that he and Jenna will eat away from everyone so that she can calm down. And... Oh boy. If I can do anything to help, you know I will. Eliza said, compassion in her voice. I know Lizzie and I appreciate it. Jenna isn't like anyone I've ever known. It's like she's a child in an adult's body, and she has no knowledge of everyday things you and I take for granted. I have a very bad feeling about what her life has been like. You only have to look into her eyes to see that she is one very damaged woman, Isaac. You're going to have to take it slow and not push too hard. child in an adult's body that is the verbatim quote child in an adult's body have you ever heard of the born sexy yesterday trope 
I came across this concept through a YouTube channel called Pop Culture Detective. It's a common theme in some sci-fi films. Think of Lilu in The Fifth Element or Madison in Splash. These are women who are fully grown women, but they are completely naive to the point of being childlike. I have heard it described as a justified Lolita, and if that doesn't explain why this trope is gross, then I don't know what would. Jenna embraces Born Sexy yesterday with most, without most of the sci-fi flair. She's been caged up in this cult compound since she was four years old, and it's been 20 years. Oh yeah, she manages to figure that much out, so Isaac is totally okay and legal with his obsession. No clue as to his age, so the jury is still out on the creep factor, though. Isaac has to teach her how the world is, and isn't he so nice to teach her, and how special she is, so he has to protect her. He's literally the first man that she's met that doesn't beat her, and all his friends are telling her how cool and trustworthy he is, and they're all in the same cool club together. And to make matters worse, I think the author is aware of this trope, so she throws in some very weird moments for Jenna. Jenna doesn't know that TV isn't evil, and automatically assumes that Eliza should have been subservient to her husband. She is in massive, massive need of some deprogramming. She needs to be in the care of professionals who have experience working with former cult members so that she can learn how to navigate the real world. But in some ways, Jenna has these moments that give off serious girl boss vibes. I don't know what her character is like because it keeps swinging between frightened, abused cult member and headstrong, rebellious woman. A frightened and timid woman who learns her true worth and becomes self-reliant is a great character art. And a spirited woman who never broke no matter how badly they treated her and beat her and learns to trust and forgive herself is also a great character art. But the two blended, at least blended this poorly, does not work. I mean, for God's sake, she has to ask Isaac if she is allowed to sleep in the bed when he takes her to a bedroom for resting. This is not a person who should be engaging in romantic relationships. And for the charity on this shit Sunday, she explains that while sexual abuse was happening in the cult, she was never touched because they believed her virginity was tied to her power of healing. I do realize that this is played out as a result of the, quote, bad guy's behavior, but it is still gross that it was presented this way. While Jenna is recounting her tale of horror in the cult, she reveals that it's not the cult that's after her. It's this unknown group with guns, as she describes it, that the cult sold her to. The cult elders allowed the sale on two conditions, that she can still be made available to heal the elders when needed, and that she remain a virgin. And the oh-so-pleasant mystery group leader spoke to her alone and told her that he can't wait to rape her. No one here uses the word rape, but that there would be nothing consensual about his actions. That's when she got it into her mind to escape, and that's how she ended up with Isaac. And while she's recounting the story, by the way, she's in bed with Isaac again, and he's teaching her about kissing, and she's marveling at how amazing kissing can be. Which is great. So Isaac goes to rally the troops and Jenna looks at all of them like, wow, they're all going to protect me. How wonderful. I should stay with them and make sure I listen to their advice. <laughs> oh, no, oh, wait, no. She thinks I can't let them sacrifice for me. Some stupid nobody while people are willing to kill me to get me back. I'm going to run. 
with no knowledge of the world and literally nothing useful in my pockets. So she runs when Isaac falls asleep that night and immediately gets captured. When the DSS people notice that she's gone, they enlist the help of one of the wives that these women are also referred as. She can tap into someone's mind and can see where they are and what they're doing. She gets a lock on Jenna and they get to move on. And because this is only halfway through the novel, they rescue her no problem. Jenna is still confused as to why Isaac and DSS is doing all of this and Isaac can't keep it in anymore. I'm in so deep that there is no way I'll ever dig my way out and baby, I am right where I want to be. So far inside you that you will never be free of me. I want to make love to you with a desperation that is eating me alive and consumes my every waking thought. I want to take you bare with nothing between us so we are skin to skin, as close as two people can ever be. I want to give you a baby, my baby, so you'll be bound to me forever with no way of ever escaping me. I love the image of you round and swollen with my child, of me loving you forever, of building a family with you. I want to keep you pregnant all the time so you'll never even think about leaving me because you'll be wrapped up in me and all the babies I'm going to give you. Okay, um, what the absolute fuck? These are not the words of a person who is supposed to be the hero of our romance. These are the words of an obsessive stalker. This is the kind of shit that should send women running for the hills. Hell, a guy once told me something not terribly unlike this, and I dropped him so fast he is probably still spinning. Yeah, I have seen the whole I want to build a family with you with bunches of babies thing, and it was fine there, but when you couple it with I want to make you pregnant so you can't escape me is where this becomes a horror story. And when you compound it with the fact that she's recently escaped from a doomsday religious cult and on the run from a guy who was already promised to rape her as much as he wants, this is not a good look. From where I am standing, Jenna has traded one prison for another and Isaac isn't giving her much of a choice. It is such a good thing that Jenna loves Isaac too, but remember she is playing in the born sexy yesterday trope. Isaac is the only safe man she's ever met, and she has no barometer for what a normal man should be like. It, she's only, quote, in love with Isaac because she literally has no other experience with relationships. After his declaration, they decide to have sex. As Jenna puts it, Isaac gave her the words for love. Now she wants to give her the act of love. And I need to be super clear about this. Jenna doesn't even know what an orgasm is. She tells him that she wants him to touch her, but she doesn't know why. And Isaac doesn't explain anything either. Okay, throwing out the concept that one should know what an orgasm is and how to do it alone before attempting with a partner, it is still completely far-fetched that Jenna is going to come the very first time ever with whatever the hell Isaac is doing. As she approaches her climax, Isaac reassures her to just go with it, that he'll never do anything that hurts her. Motherfucker, she doesn't know that! I'm sorry, but this is beyond the pale for me. I realize that it's probably more than a little difficult to conceptualize it, but try to consider the act of an orgasm 
without the knowledge of what it is or what's happening. It's probably scary as hell if you've got no idea. For all you know, you're having a stroke. Isaac's promise that he won't hurt her is probably not very reassuring. Man, when I thought that I couldn't get mad anymore at these books, <laughs> something swoops in and reminds me. Oh, 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 and don't worry. If you thought we were going to get away with this without poor Jenna being scared and worried that Isaac's not going to fit because his dick is so big, I promise we get that too. It's the born sexy yesterday bullshit again. She literally has no reference. And now Isaac gets to enjoy that when she tells him that he's got such a big penis. Yay for Isaac. Oh, we'll made for each other, baby. I'll fit. That's not really verbatim what he says to her, but it's pretty damn close. Oh. <laughs> I completely erased this next bit from my memory when I read this the first time. Then he thrust forward, hard and deep, rending the fragile barrier that proclaimed her innocence. She cried out, tears shimmering in her eyes as she gripped his shoulders. His heart damn near split in two when a tear trickled down the side of her face to disappear in her hair. I'm sorry, baby, he said, his chest aching as he lowered his mouth to kiss her. I'm so damn sorry I hurt you. I wouldn't hurt you for anything in the world. Just stay still. I won't move until the pain goes away and then I'll make you feel good again. I swear it. Please forgive me, he pleaded. Again, respectfully what I ask, the absolute fuck. Look, if it hurts this badly when the hymen is broken, then something bad has happened. Hymens wear down literally just by existing in the body. Yes, sometimes a tear can happen and there is a little bit of blood, but it usually doesn't hurt, at least not to the point of crying. Oh, and an intact hymen is not a sign of innocence, for fuck's sake! You can break your hymen going to get a pap smear or even going horseback riding. It doesn't always happen during sex. And when she asks if it always has to hurt like that, he promises no, it'll never hurt again. Even though anyone who's ever had sex will know that sex can and still hurt when circumstances aren't just right. I I just I just can't. It's bullshit. It's it's all bullshit. Once they've had their very first sexual encounter, Jennifer gets what time means because they spend three days in this room without leaving. Three days. Not an exaggeration. And they haven't eaten. It's such a minor detail, but it's so rage-inducing. I don't know about anyone else, but I am damn sure I could not keep up the stamina for a three-day sex fest without actual food. We see more whiplash of sexy girl boss Jenna and formerly abused cult member Jenna when she doesn't care about food, only more sex, and then being afraid of Isaac's anger if she doesn't like the food that he made her. Her character is just so strange. One minute she doesn't know anything about the world, timid as a mouse, and the next minute she's wise beyond her ears and oh, so strong. When Jenna is finally convinced to leave the room for actual self-care, we get this inner soliloquy from Isaac that is pages long about how broken he was before Jenna, how she healed him, how he's so devoted to her now, 
It's like adding too much milk to your mashed potatoes in order to stretch them out for a crab, but you're just left with soggy, soupy mess that isn't very good. We don't need this. Anyway, now that Jen has decided that TV isn't the devil's instrument anymore, she catches something on the news. Turns out the cult that she'd escaped from were brutally slaughtered, likely by the group that has been pursuing her. Jenna is rightly freaked out by this, and Isaac's solution isn't necessarily to give her space or telling her to go to bed, because especially since that they haven't slept for three days either. No, he just straight up sedates her, because that's the rational thing at this point. I mean, sure, like, okay, offering a sleep aid is fine on its own, but when you add the context of, well, everything, yeah. Eventually, they figure out that the mystery group after her is led by this guy named uh, Jesus, a nickname that they've given him. His real name is Eduardo. And I guess he's a sort of drug kingpin or whatever. And notoriously violent and hard to nail down. Their solution is to lock everything down, wait for Jesus to get impatient, so no one moves anywhere or anything. Until that is, Jenna finds a woman pleading on a news program, prompted by the recent cult attack, if anyone knew about the whereabouts of her missing daughter. The moment I saw this woman pop up in my story, my brain is screaming, it's a trap at top volume. You can't tell me it's not, and for some reason, they don't see it. And they've decided, after doing the bare minimum of due diligence, it is totally okay for Jenna to go meet her in public. Jesus has already proven that he is happy to make as many casualties as he can to get what he wants. He has already been known to be impossible to catch. He doesn't care about consequences. There is no way this doesn't go pear-shaped. Isaac takes Jenna to meet the mother at the restaurant. When they hug, oops, Jenna gets scratched by something on her mother's clothing. And during the meal, Jenna feels sick and needs to go to the bathroom. Her mother helpfully guides her. And then... You can't fight me, she said dispassionately. The button I scratched you with... I drugged you. You're as weak as a kitten, and if you don't move fast, not only will I shoot you, but I'll shoot your precious Isaac, too. So if you don't want him to die, then you're coming with me through that window, and you're going to do it fast before he gets worried and barges in. Because if that happens, I kill him, Jenna. So get moving. Wow, I'm so shocked. I can't believe this betrayal. Yeah, so it turns out when Jenna was taken by the cult, it was actually her mother who murdered Jenna's father and then sold her. And now she gets to double dip by selling her to Jesus. I absolutely hate the fact that she drugged Jenna, but also still expected her to be able to climb out a window with any efficiency. Real mixed signals there. DSS is obviously able to attempt to stop the kidnapping, but... I don't know why this woman was there. One of the wives again. I can't keep track of these people. Uh, she gets shot and she's pregnant. And Jenna does the thing where she promises to go with the bad guys if she can heal the dying woman. How many times did this author watch Tangled? Again, this exchange is pages long. It doesn't need to be, but it is. And I can't move on without giving you this bit. Ari's eyes filled with tears. I don't know how she did it, but she saved us both, and I felt the presence of our child. It was so powerful, 
It was the most beautiful thing I've ever felt in my life. In that moment, I knew everything would be alright. Please, Bo, you must see to her now. You can't let that monster take her. I couldn't bear it if she traded her life for me and my child. I could probably spend at least several thousand words on how awful that paragraph is, but I gotta get through this, so let's go. Through another psychic link, they can get a read on Jenna and where she is. They find out that Jesus is threatening to shoot people in front of her and not let her heal them if she doesn't agree to be his personal healer and sex toy. And they also hear that girl boss Jenna is here instead of timid, abused ex-cult member Jenna. Everyone's telling, wow, what a woman you have there. She'll be a handful. Kill me. DSS essentially stages a massive bunker invasion when they finally get to where Jesus is holding Jenna. And when they get there, they find Jenna holding a gun to Jesus' head. Don't ask me how we got to this point, because I have no goddamn clue. Anyway, Isaac is like, don't do it, baby, he's not worth it. And Jenna's like, bet, and shoots the guy. Before she does this, she says, and I quote, justice is mine to dispense. Who the hell is this woman? <laughs> this isn't the Jenna we've been seeing. This isn't even girl boss Jenna. This is a Jenna who's about to form her own damn cult because apparently now believes she has been ordained to decide between life and death for people. And then after she shoots him, she immediately starts weeping. Trauma, I guess. So Isaac takes her back to his house and I've got no fucking clue when or where this ring came from because I am done. He proposes, she says yes, and it's happily ever after. And the epilogue finds Isaac and Jenna, one kid already running around, and she is pregnant with a second already, as Isaac promised. The end. I'm not going to mince words. That was a shit show, and I don't want to spend any more time on this, so let's just go on to Heather's final score. We start with the cover, of course, and that gets a 2 out of 5. It's just boring. I am down for a minimalist cover, but it needs to be interesting, and this isn't interesting. The only reason it's not a 1 is because it's not completely incompetent. Drama is a 3 out of 5. This is probably my most charitable score today, only because there is something genuinely neat hiding in this book. A security company that keeps fighting super-powered women? Yeah, sign me up. Oh, a cult member is running for her life because of her miraculous gift? Yes, please, can I have seconds? But there is a major glaring problem. You know how bad Twilight is? And yet Stephanie Meyer is actually pretty cool with world building? This is that, but without the charm that makes Twilight tolerable or even entertaining for depraved maniacs like myself. Romance is a 1 out of 5. Jenna and Isaac only have to look at each other once and they immediately wanted to start sucking each other's faces. Isaac was obsessed because she healed him and apparently washed away for any need of therapy while she was at it, and Jenna was obsessed with him because she literally had no other choice. I don't want to talk about Spice Level. In fact, I'm not giving it a score, because what happened between Jenna and Isaac was not okay. Yeah, sure, Jenna consented, but she didn't know what she was consenting to. She didn't know what an orgasm was. Her hymen was forcibly broken by an idiot who apparently thought it was supposed to hurt badly only once. Jenna didn't even know what kissing was like, but she had no context for sex or relationships, and thanks to her time in the cult, she was almost childlike. But isn't that great for Isaac, who doesn't have to do anything at all to impress her? Lucky him. 
So no spice level here because it's gross and I hate everything. And realism is a 1 out of 5. I'm sure I don't have to explain myself. Disappointed would not be the correct word for how I feel. Anger, perhaps. Frustration. Sadness. This novel could have been interesting, even good. But in the end, what really dragged this book down was a gobbledygook of redundant pose and whiplash personalities. This author needs to fire her editor and get somebody actually competent, or maybe even practice her writing with people who won't praise every word she feeds them. But every novel can teach us something. For me, right now, as I'm typing away at my own book for NaNoWriMo, I've certainly been given a shining example of what not to do. For my final score, Just One Touch lands itself on the shelf of shame with one possibly racist drug lord caricatures out of five. <sighs> Thank you for joining me, readers and romance seekers, and I hope to see you once again for Hopelessly Romantic. If you like the show, please visit us at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to recommend a read, please email us at contact at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. The show is written and produced by me, Heather Songster. Our technical advisor is Kwong Min Cho. Hopelessly Romantic is an H with K production. And it doesn't matter what you read, <laughs> only that it's what you love. <laughs>